Hello, listeners. Welcome to Drive Back the Night. Uh, before we get into our show today, we Ethan and I just wanted to take a minute and uh, address a certain situation uh, that has been going on in our personal lives. Uh, we normally don't talk about our personal lives, but this uh, really involves the Drive Back the Night family. As some of you who uh, may already know, if you follow our Twitter feed, um, we recently had a, a tragedy in the Drive Back the Night family. Um, the voice of the quotes at the beginning of each episode, Tim Kimmerly, uh, recently lost his wife in a tragic auto accident, and she uh, also left behind two children. And we're very saddened by this, um, so that's why we took last week off. We um, were grieving ourselves, and also we were um, helping our friend Tim cope with the loss of his wife uh, the best we could. Yeah, and, and we realize that this is probably not something that the majority of you listeners um, know of, or, or, or even, I dare I say, care about. It's not an issue of caring. Everyone cares when someone loses someone. But this was something that struck really close to home for us. And so, yeah, we were just taking some time to uh, assess. And, you know, if, if there's anything that comes out of this it's that we could pass on that is beneficial to you listeners, you know, if you're listening to this at work and you have loved ones at home, uh, when you go home tonight and you tuck your kids into bed or, or, or you hug your significant other, uh, hug them a little tighter because in an instant, it can it can all be over, and it's something that we all are aware of. But when it hits close to home, it 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 means so much more. And so we appreciate you uh, being patient with us uh, as we kind of come to terms with this and come to terms with the loss of a friend, and uh, are dealing with, uh, with with Tim's loss. And we know that all of y'all have have heard Tim's voice, uh, and you know he he's got a, a long road ahead of him to recover. But before we get into it, we, we did want to make some sort of gesture. And so this episode 24, we're actually dedicating in the memory of Emily Kimmerly. And that's kind of our drive back the night, our, our contribution to, you know, the situation. Well said, Ethan. And you mentioned there, too, that, you know, people don't uh, listen to us to, to hear us talk about our problems or, or our personal lives. Um, but they do listen for the same reason that we do this. And what is the reason for that? We, uh, we love being entertained. Uh, we love being distracted. Right. And I think that uh, after such a, a long last couple of weeks, I could really do with a distraction. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and continue on with episode 24. The soul is larger than the sky, deeper than the ocean, or the abysmal dark of the unfathomed center. Welcome you back to another episode of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I am Ryan Mazzocco. I'm Ethan Maestri. This week we are doing episode number two of... Oh my gosh, Ethan, was that your stomach? <laughs> Sorry, dude. I, I haven't eaten this evening. 
was, I apologize. That was, a, that was amazing. Okay, just try to keep your stomach in check for the rest of the I'll, show. I'll you? work on it. I'll work on it. Uh, season two, uh, episode two. This is Exit Strategies. You know, this is going to... Again, I apologize. I I know I should have eaten something before I came over. It won't happen again. Okay. I'm working on it. All right. So anyway, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about um, with this episode. I think we're going to learn a lot about some... Uh, Ethan, why are you looking at my arm like that? Oh, dude. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Uh, I just I was zoning out for a second there thinking about chicken wings... And I guess I just l- kind of locked in on your your arm. I, sorry, I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. Okay, you're creeping just a bit now. Um, c- can you go on? I'm good. Okay, I'm good. All right, I'll muscle through this. Okay, so exit strategies. You know, um, with uh, the Andromeda in the shape that is. Oh, Ethan. I'm sorry. You you bit my arm. I I. I don't know what came over me. I, I'm just, I'm really hungry, and... I've got some, some cookies here. Oh, you want some cookies? Uh, it kind of needs to be flesh. Okay. Uh, I've, I've, got, I've got a tin of jerky over here. That'll work. Okay, here, here, eat this. So anyway, as, uh, as I was saying, episode 24... Um, can you keep it down over there? That's, eat a little further away from the mic. That is really disgusting. Okay. So anyway, oh god, that's good. You know what? I've completely lost interest in this introduction. Can we just skip on to the trivia? <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, we got some trivia for you. As I pick the uh, jerky from my teeth, Ian Marsh plays Kiyama, uh, the Nietzschean merc that's on the uh, the ice planet, and uh, he's got a few credits to him uh, around sci-fi television. He's done the Millennium. Uh, television series, The X-Files, Dark Angel, and, of course, Stargate SG-1. John McDonald was a stuntman that's an uncredited Nietzschean in this show. Now, he's a regular stuntman in the Andromeda series. He has a multitude of credits uh, during the show uh, as a stuntman, and indeed throughout television and film. And the same can be said, too, for Christian McGuire. He also plays an uncredited Nietzschean uh, in this episode, uh, he played Ryder, though, I thought this was interesting, the character Ryder, in Star Trek Voyager, the series finale, Endgame. Hmm. So about the time he was doing Endgame uh, for Star Trek Voyager, uh, a little bit later, he, he does this episode for, uh, for Andromeda, because hmm. that was right around 2001, around the same time there. And anyway, that's all I've got uh, for uh, a few fun facts. All right, well... Quick and efficient with your fun facts, as usual. Uh, while you still got the mic there, you want to go ahead and give us a rundown of what happened in Exit Strategies? Absolutely. So, with Andromeda still damaged and dead in space, Dylan, Becca, Tyr, and Revbim have headed out on the Maru for a parts run. Now, it wouldn't be a parts run without some excitement, and sure enough, the Maru has found it. Attacked by a squadron of Nietzschean fighters that Tyr identifies from Mandal Pride, the Maru is forced to dump her fuel to prevent her own destruction and briefly escapes into Slipstream. But instead of getting all the way back to Andromeda, Becca is forced to crash land the Maru on this galaxy's only slightly more hospitable version of the planet Hoth. Cut to the new title sequence, where Dylan stands majestically for the camera, while somebody that sounds a little bit like Gary Busey tells us what we already know about the show, and then quick cuts to explosions 
and slow motion shots of each crew member in a falling sequence. Back to the show. After three weeks, Harper, Trance, and Rami are finally finishing cleaning up Magog corpses that have been strewn all over the ship. Harper seems a bit distant, and when prompted to help finish up, he responds by pulling a weapon and emptying the clip in a few dozen Magog bodies. Yeah, Harper is having some problems dealing with what happened to him on the Magog world ship. We'll come back to that later. Meanwhile, everyone on the Maru is coming around and begins to assess their situation. It's not good. There's no locator beacon and no fuel. They have to remedy that if they're ever going to get off planet again. Oh, and something else. Revbim has been fasting for three weeks as penance for the Magog that he killed on the Andromeda and the world ship. His fast was almost up, and he was going to chow down on some live salmon that he kept on the Andromeda to end his fast. But now he can't. He also can't eat the rations that are on board because Magog have to eat live prey in order to restart their metabolisms. Seeing as how the only live prey on the planet appears to be the other three crew members on the Maru, this could be a problem. Dylan decides to head out and try and find any settlements that may be on the planet. Hopefully, he'll find fuel as well. As he makes his way around the frozen landscape, he and the crew back on the Maru are beginning to realize that, as C-3PO would put it, this planet may not be entirely stable. Dylan also discovers a large structure in the distance and begins making his way toward it. Becca now begins to question Tyr as to why simple slavers would bother trying to chase down a mark like the Maru, and she wants to know what Tyr did with the Maru all those months ago when he disappeared with it. Dylan approaches the structure and outpour a horde of Nietzschean mercs with guns ablazing. Dylan flees, and just when it appears he might be caught, Tyr comes to his rescue, and both continue their escape back to the Maru. On board, Becca begins to talk with the suffering Rev Bim, and she confesses her odd uneasiness with planets. She also uses this conversation to work in her admission that she trusts that Rev Bim won't use her flesh to restart his digestive system. To which, Rev says that he'll pray that he doesn't. Not exactly the reassurance I would have been hoping for if I were in Becca's position. In any case, Tyr and Dylan are still trying to extricate themselves from the, their Nietzschean pursuers. In a moment of pause, one of the Nietzscheans calls out to Tyr by name, to which Dylan asks if there's anything that Tyr needs to tell him. Just as with Becca, Tyr pleads the fifth. Back on Andromeda, Harper has cloistered himself in a maintenance tube. Rami needs him to fix a leak in the engine room, but Harper can't. He can't deal with the memories of what happened to him here or on the world ship. He just, he just can't. Dylan and Tyr arrive on the Maru safely, but the Nietzscheans begin shelling the area around the ship. This causes the unstable ground under them to give way, and the Maru plunges nearly 80 meters underground. They discover that they are in a large network of tunnels and determine that the planet is an old mining planet. Their situation is grave. Tyr suggests that they lure the Nietzscheans into the Maru, blow it up, and use their ships to escape, a plan that Becca will have no part of, and since the Maru is her ship, they're not going to blow it up. Another plan will have to be made. They head out into the tunnels and discover evidence of squarms being present. Squarms are a perfect mining creature, genetically made to seek out metallic ore in planets, ingest it, and then excrete it as refined metal. They're huge creatures and extremely bad-tempered. And if there's nothing else to eat, the Maru may end up on the menu. If that prospect isn't bad enough, 
Rev is starting to suffer the worsening effects of his fast. His body is beginning to ravage itself. He tried eating some of the rations to stave off the effects, but to no avail. Becca suggests killing some of the Nietzscheans and eating them, perhaps. But Rev will not concede to killing again, even if it means his own life. We now find Harper in the medical bay, drinking 40s, playing with the x-ray machine, and having a chat with the Magog larvae in his stomach. They are giving him nothing but grief, and he's tired of it. He pulls his gun from the holster that, oddly, he's been wearing around the ship this whole time, since the attack, and points it at his gut. Just as he's about to pull the trigger, Rami walks in and stops him. Back in the tunnels, Dylan and Becca stumble upon a plan to get the Maru off-planet. Using the old mining operation's magnetic accelerator, the Maru could be launched into space. They'll just have to extend the accelerator rings over to where the Maru is laying, using the metal in the squirm dung. They'll also have to do all of this while avoiding being surrounded by an increasing number of hungry squirms that are closing in on them. Realizing that the worms are close, Dylan and Becca head back to the ship. There, they find that Tyr has raided the weapons locker and is headed back out into the tunnels for reasons as yet unclear. Tyr indeed has taken the weapons and is using them to make a deal with Kiyama. Yeah, Tyr knows this Nietzschean merc by name as well. He had a deal with Kiyama and his team that went south when Tyr was attacked by the dragons. Now, Tyr is trying to make good with these Nietzscheans as part of his quest to use the remains of Drago Masevni to control the fate of the Nietzschean people. But Kiyama and his group really couldn't care less about the Nietzscheans as a race. They just want the money for Tyr. Betrayed, Tyr uses some squirm dung to demonstrate a devastating golf disc throw and escapes into the tunnels heading back to the Maru. Aboard the Andromeda, Harper is playing a twisted game of chicken with the potential destruction of Andromeda and Harper at stake. But Rami convinces him that he is needed by the ship, by the crew, and by her. This gets through to Harper, and he fixes the leak in the engine room. Things are worsening for Rev on the Maru, though. Suffering terribly, he begs Becca to kill him. Becca won't do it, and helps him to see that, just as we learned with Harper, Rev is needed, too, and he needs to hang on. Dylan finds Tyr in the tunnels, and they escape onto the Maru. Kiyama and his brood press their attack, but are quickly overrun by a swarm of Scorm, and meet a grisly end. The Maru advances to the magnetic accelerator and launches like a bullet into space. Hopefully, as Becca mentions, with enough momentum to slingshot around the sun and pick up some fuel. But not so fast that they go back in time. Well, maybe they won't have to worry about that last part. And evidently they don't, because they arrive safely back on Andromeda. Rev gets to feast like a grizzly bear on salmon, and Harper is kind of back to his old self. He's also thankful that Rev is praying for him. Dylan and Tyr have a chat. Dylan shows Tyr a wanted poster with Tyr's face on it, along with a bounty of 10 million dragon eagles. A substantial amount of money. Money that Dylan could use. Dylan notes that Tyr's activities outside the ship are becoming a liability. Tyr counters that he is useful to Dylan, and he's his only trained soldier. Dylan asks Tyr to explain why he is staying on the ship. Tyr says that, at first, he thought he might be able to take control of the ship, and it made a convenient base for him to operate from. However, after they encountered the Magog world ship, he rethought his priorities, and he realized that he needs Dylan. They sit down to a game of Go, and Dylan, in a seeming double entendre, invites Tyr to make his move. The end. 
Well, Ethan, my opening observation was going to be a joke about the slingshot around the sun. <laughs> but sorry, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't leave that one. I know. I couldn't let it just lay there. Yeah. But I go really, ahead. Uh, Treat it as if it didn't come up in the summary. Okay. It's a good thing they didn't slingshot so fast they went back in time. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you caught that too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of a hard one to ignore. Yeah. Any, yeah. Anytime the phrase slingshot around the sun. Yeah. Ha- have we mentioned that we're fans of Star Trek? <laughs> I don't know if we needed to. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's my observation. It's your turn. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I just, I, I watched this episode and suddenly it struck me like a, a, a bolt out of the blue. Uh, not so much because, because I was watching this TV show, but I actually now have an idea for my monster B movie. Okay. And the tagline will be Tremors meets the Empire Strikes Back in the Squarm. <laughs> Come on. Won't that be epic? That is pretty good. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because I had in my notes, you're really touching on stealing another joke of mine. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's okay. We can put them together. Okay, let's Because do it. I was going to talk about um, the, the squorum is a genetically modified thing, creature. Hold right? on. Is it squorum or is it squorum or squorm? I guess it depends on who's saying it. Okay. Tomato, yeah. tomato. Yeah. Depends on if you're Canadian or not, but I'm sure. But nobody says tomato. Okay. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think I figured out actually how they made the squarms. Okay, go for it. Um, I think they spliced DNA from the Horda and Tremors. <laughs> the Horda, yeah, man, this thing was just laced with Star Trek and Star Wars references. Yeah, and Tremors, and Tremors, <laughs> yeah, a lot of Tremors in there. Uh, let's talk about this for a second. Just can you imagine the props and CG uh, departments for this show? When they, when they get the, 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 I don't know, the plan or the, the, the script for the show, and they're like, we have only this much money to work with, <laughs> and yet we've got to come up with big giant worms <laughs> that eat people. <laughs> yeah. Because there were actually some pretty elaborate, you know, the, the, the baby squirm that's eating Kiyama, that was a pretty elaborate, mm-hmm. you know, little prop that they had to build there, plus all the CG of the drunk worm dropping from the ceiling and mm-hmm. stuff, and... And you've already got the set that probably cost them some money. Yeah, because they did reuse the world ship set, didn't they? Did they? The the caves? Oh, okay. I'm I'm imagining a lot of that was probably reuse of the the world ship. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, just redress it a little bit. But I mean, the, obviously, I think there was a lot of CG to make some of the caverns look bigger in the background. Uh-huh. But a lot of the tight shots, like Tyr running from the the Nietzscheans when he's trying to escape. Yeah, I think a lot of that was probably reused stuff from the, the previous episode. Okay. That, that was make, just my thought on it. Well, that makes sense. Um, you know, it's interesting about that set. It, I, I'm always so amazed how on any movie or TV show, when they go deep, deep underground in these caverns and caves, uh, they're always so well lit. Yeah. Yeah. You almost expect to see a tour group kind of come through yeah. <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I've actually been on one of those tour groups, yeah. and, you know, they actually turned off the lights. Yeah. And guess what? It's pretty dang dark. I could not see anything. Yeah. At all. Yeah. I love those when they tell you, now stick your hand in front of your face. Uh-huh. It's like, I'm doing it. I'm making the motion. <laughs> I think I'm making the motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. The uh, 
Well, it wouldn't be much of a TV show if we couldn't see what was going on. They did start out with flashlights, though. That is true. So, I mean... <laughs> they kind of gave up on that after a little bit. It, it seems like they did, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because that's when I, I was actually watching for that. I was going to say, okay, when oh, they go out... And- oh, hold on. The Maru did have its floodlights on. It's running lights. So there was some source of light. Yeah, but then as they as they go deeper into the caves... It, it seems like after a turn or two... Yeah. It's, yeah, that light's just not penetrating that far. Mm-hmm. But okay, all right, all right. So they come under attack by this these Nietzschean fighters as they're making their escape, or or as they're running. Uh, and I'm referring to the Maru and the, the crew on board it. Uh, Becca mentions after they dump the fuel, uh, she makes a physics reference. Thank goodness for momentum, mm-hmm. right? And I thought, you know, that's great. Because, it, like, well, referencing Star Trek again, anytime the Enterprise, uh, the power cuts out on the Enterprise, it's like they stop, <laughs> which doesn't happen in space, you know? Props to Andromeda for recognizing that physics is a thing that exists. Wow. <laughs> you know? But then the next line is uh, they, they, go in, they jump into slip spe- uh, Slipstream because they, they ride the, the momentum forward. They ride it into Slipstream. Then as they're navigating Slipstream, uh, Tyr says, wait, wait, we've lost life support. Get to a planet immediately. My thought on that is, okay, life support fails. You've got a few minutes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many minutes does it take to get back to the, to the Andromeda? It typically doesn't seem like it takes that long. Could you have ridden Slipstream a little, gotten a little bit closer maybe, and then called Andromeda to come rescue you? Because it seems to me like you would have a couple hours Unless the Maru is just that bad of a ship that it's leaking air <laughs> straight out into space. Instead of having to immediately ditch and crash land on a planet. Mm-hmm. A- am I making sense or oh. am I just... No, it does make sense. Um, I understand. We won't have a story if we think through this logically. <laughs> and, and right. By the word logically, I mean in science fiction, mm-hmm. which is... You know, it, it, the story has to be what the story is, you know, I guess is, is how you have to look at it. But it, it just struck what, me what that... What needs to happen has to has, has to, happen. to happen. You're happen. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I'm being a little overly critical in my assessment of this. But it just seems like, okay, you acknowledge that physics exists, um, but, you know, you're going to hold air for a little bit longer than it, a minute and a half. Physics works until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. If there's nothing else that we've learned from... This show, Tier Anasazi. Yeah. Right? You're absolutely right. Okay, okay I shut my mouth in. <laughs> you know, um, there's one thing that always drives me crazy is when when we get a real heavy snowstorm, and we get uh, usually several of them a year here where we live, and you go outside, and the sun is just beating down, reflecting off of that white snow. It completely blinds me. Yeah. And uh, I kind of think that Dylan would have had a better shot out there if he had had some tinted safety glasses. Instead of just the clear ones? Because I happen to know, um, I actually buy my safety glasses at Harbor Freight like Dylan does. (laughs) And I know for a fact that they have tinted safety glasses for use out in the sun. What about those big yellow ones that you put over your eye, your uh, eyeglasses? Oh, no. Those those don't work. Those don't do anything? No. uh -uh. (laughs) Okay. No. Still seems like that would have been a better thing than just clear. You think so? I, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. Uh, anything. 
anything. No, I hear you. So he got those at Harbor Freight, did he? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or Home Depot. Okay. But, but they have the same thing there too. Are they? What is it? ANSI rated? Yes. Oh, yeah. sweet. Yeah, they can. They can take a sixteen penny nail. Sidebar. Mm-hmm. I looked up the American. Uh, what is it? ANSI, a American National Standard. Uh, whatever it is, website. Okay. After we had that discussion on the, uh, the last show. Uh huh. Pretty interesting website. Not. No. <laughs> it is literally just standards for stuff. If you're ever bored at work, check out the ansi.com website. Hours of reading. <laughs> uh, Tier, I, I just had to bring this up because I, I love um, this little interchange. Tier, after the crash, slaps Bim. <laughs> Obviously not knowing that Bim's been fasting and is a little bit hungry. <laughs> right. Maybe Tear wishes you could take that one back. But in any case, he says, you dead. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. And then Beb, Bim uh, comes to and responds to Tear. Tear Anasazi of Kodiak Pride. Clearly, I am not in heaven. Mm-hmm. I wanted a, a a audience track at that moment to go, oh, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> because Tear got burned. <laughs> I, th- I thought that was that's pretty telling about Rev's uh, belief in Tears. Well, I was going to say it's possibility awful, of it's awful judgy, isn't it? A little bit judgy about <laughs> yeah. where Tears going to end up in the afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> so Ryan, uh, I know I wasn't the only one that noticed this. I'm sure you did too. I'm going to break. I'm going to broach the subject here. Uh, we have another Dylan and Becca moment. Yeah, yeah, that's true. How do you think that went? It was awkward. It was awkward. How does this man get women? I don't know. It, it's, it's. I, I've said it before. I will say it again. Becca must be this man's kryptonite. Yeah. As far as you know, the, you know, putting on the moves. He, he's got no game with her. No. Whatsoever. I think on the scoreboard, uh, this comes down to awkward moment three, <laughs> Dylan zero at this point. Yeah. I think is what we're what we're up to at this point. Now, this was something that I noticed. You kind of mentioned in your uh, recap also when you were talking about the opening title sequence, about all of the slow-mo shots. Um, is this just a new thing for season two? Because did you notice, it just seemed like there were so many slow-mo shots. That's why I brought it up. Did you? <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm thinking, there's a lot of slow-mo here. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the guy that did Mission Impossible 2? Famous for something... Oh, I can't remember the guy, the director's name, known for slow motion okay. shots. I'm wondering, did he make this title <laughs> sequence? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then when the when the Maru crashes, everybody falls in slow mo. Yes, um, yes. Dylan goes out and fights in, with the Nietzscheans. He and Tear fall through the snow in slow mo. They jump through the snow in slow mo. Yes, they do. It, every they it's do. like that. The whole first half of this episode is in slow motion. It, it was as if they said, we've got to have action. we got to make it last five minutes. <laughs> How are we going to do this? Yeah. Slow motion. Yep, just slow it all down. That's pretty good. They must not have had enough material to fill the whole episode. Exactly. Well, you can only jump off of so many snowdrifts, mm-hmm. and it'd be thrilling. Yeah. Okay, maybe I should save this for for what we learn about characters. But okay. This was kind of he was a minor character, Kiyama, of Mandel Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get used to him being around. Yeah, and that's specifically what I'm going to talk about here. Uh, he gets eaten. 
very, very slowly. You know, he's slowly being dragged back into the rock. And yet, he still points his guns <laughs> at the Maru. As if he wants to take a shot at Tyr, as if he could see him through the, the bulkheads of the ship. I'm thinking, why not turn it on what's eating you behind you? <laughs> yeah. That's, Just a thought. It makes a little more sense with the whole Nietzschean philosophy of self-preservation before anything. Well, I'm not saying turning turning them on himself necessarily. No, I know. On, I get what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, because self-preservation above yeah. anything. Whatever is attacking you immediately? Kill it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. No, I that totally was... get what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. All but right. he so I'm not alone there. he had revenge on his mind though. True. And that can cause you to do weird things. Yeah. Okay. Like like not kill the thing that's eating you right now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, if he had had his head on straight, I mean, he, honest, he could have done both. That is as egregious as the Star Trek episode where the guy has at least 30 seconds while the Horta approaches him <laughs> to hit it with his phaser. <laughs> Kiyama needs to hit the thing behind him that is dragging his leg into the rock, but he doesn't. Yeah. Um, I would like to address just real quick, because um, we live in an area that uh, maybe not everybody else that's listening to this around the world um, experiences the same things that we experienced as we saw in this episode of Andromeda. Okay. <clears throat> Heavy undermining and sinkholes. Yes. This is a very real threat for you and me, Ethan. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> so for people that don't understand, what happened in this episode, as, as kinda, crazy and far-fetched as it may seem... As a homeowner, <laughs> it's, it's very real. I kind of think about this laying in my bed, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, because just a few miles down the road from us, we have a little town called Galena, Kansas. And uh, a few couple of years ago, I was living here at the time. The, the big headline was that a tavern mm -hmm. fell into a sinkhole. The tavern went in the cavern. Yes, it did. And this happens. Yeah. Just these holes just open up. As we sit here, probably the ground that we are sitting on has tunnels underneath it. Mm -hmm. because Guaranteed. Of the, because of the, in, the copious amounts of mining mm -hmm. that took place around the Joplin area uh, at the turn of the, the, the century. Mm -hmm. The 20th century. Right. Not this last one. Not this last one. We're no. pretty much done with it by now. No, it's been at least 100 years. But yeah, this whole area is honeycombed. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and I didn't even think about that. Sad, because it's just like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> this isn't sci-fi. <laughs> oh, it's like, again, oh, it's nice that they're actually putting real physics in there this show. There you go. They're acknowledging yeah. the real world. Yeah. Yes. Oh, man, that is sad that we get <laughs> just totally, I totally glossed that over. That's interesting that you bring it up, because oh. now that I think about it, it's See, like... See, you glossed it over. It gave me nightmares. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, lastly, Ryan, we can't move on with, without me bringing this up. Okay. There is a drift out there in one of the galaxies called Glitter Dust. <laughs> okay. I don't know about you. The first thing that I think in my mind is some poor spacer has been on a long haul... He was lonely, but when he gets home, his wife finds glitter on the collar. <laughs> okay. It causes problems. That's what I think of when I hear the word glitter dust. Okay. So I'm thinking, what kind of place is this drift? Uh-huh. And what can you find there? Uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds kind of seedy. Okay. Um, 
That is a very real possibility uh, where you're going with that. Okay. Now, where I went with that is I'm I'm thinking about this as a a father of two very small girls. Okay. I figured you know there's a an explorer out there um, making settlements, and maybe he made this drift, and uh, he decided to let one of his daughters name it. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Totally not where I was going, but okay. Mm -hmm. I accept it. Okay. I accept that explanation, and uh, yeah. Yours is more realistic. Mine's more family-friendly. Okay. Yeah. So something that we learn in this episode, um, now to get serious a little bit here, is we learn something about the Magog um, from Rev Bim. He teaches us about the, the nature of the digestion process of the Magog. Magog metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to kill their food first. Yeah. And if they don't kill their food, the digestive process will not begin. Yeah. So they are very atypical. Yeah. They are not of this universe. They are not of the uh, the divine, <laughs> are they? No. No, they're not. <laughs> uh, well, shame on the spirit of the abyss for making – well, no, because he probably – Meant it to be that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of evil. It was. It was by design. By design. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, you're right. That is something that we learned about. I thought it was interesting, and you pointed out it is something we learned about the Magog, but we also learned something about Rev. That I'm thinking about it mm -hmm. is he. He understands that. He accepts that. He knows that about himself, and yet he loves these three. Uh, crew members that are on the Maru with him so much that he is willing to try something that he really knows is not going to work. He tries to eat the rations just just to kind of keep it at bay, mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't work. But he, he's not going to give in to that impulse to uh, to take live flesh, mm -hmm. even to preserve himself. I think that says a lot about Rev as a character. And it, you know, you look at it; they're they're his friends. So obviously there's that incentive to not eat them. Um, but in the way he's talking, especially to Becca in that scene, he takes it further that he will not kill anyone. Even these enemies that are trying to attack them. Yeah. He, he won't even kill them to, in order to, to keep living. Well, he's done it. He, yeah. has, he has killed his enemies. Mm -hmm. He has killed those that were going to kill his friends. Mm -hmm. it, and it... It is devastating. Right. You know? It wrecked him. <laughs> wrecked him? <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that out. Yeah. But that's why now he's on this, this fast, this three-week fast, and now he's going to go back to the Andromeda and eat his salmon. So... Which, kind of, hold on. Yeah. Can we address that for just a second? Sure, go ahead. Because I mentioned in the summary, uh -huh. like a grizzly bear... <laughs> Chowing down on Sam. What must that have been like? Rev is finally home. <laughs> he's he's securing his his cabin wherever he's at. I I almost imagine the Cookie Monster <laughs> going after a bowl of cookies. Yeah. that's what it might have looked like. It might have looked like you going after that jerky at the beginning of this show. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I want. I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. The bite marks they'll heal. I don't think he quite drew blood. I kind of wonder about this this three week fasting length. He kind of he 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 kind of predetermined that. He set that as that was his goal for this. Uh, that was his penance. Um, I wonder 
what the reasoning is behind the three weeks. Does it have something to do with how many other beings he killed? Um, does it have something to do with maybe he has tried fasting before and he knows how long he can go? And he's trying to push it to the very limit because it seemed like at the beginning of this trip, he was fine. Yeah, he seemed okay. We really didn't have any indication that something was wrong, anything was different. And then like six hours later. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, he's he's bleeding from the eyes. I mean, this... <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. th- that's not healthy, I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, did, did he know that three weeks is the threshold for either him or for Magog? Do you think he had a conversation with Dylan before they headed out on this parts run where he said, how long are we going to be gone? And Dylan <laughs> says, oh, about three weeks. He's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> are there going to be de- any delays? Yeah. Because that might be a problem for me. No, no delays. It's quite easy. Going to Glitter Dust, you know, we're going to spend a couple of evenings there, and then you know, we'll be back in three weeks. Okay, I can yeah. do that. Well, see, then again, I mean, if he's learned anything on this ship, is that there are always delays. Always, yeah. Every week, there's delays. Yeah. So, and it brings up another interesting point about the salmon, and, well, really, anything that he has to kill to eat, because he says that he will not kill to eat but he kills to eat every day so yeah. where do you draw the line what is we, we talk about this all the time mm-hmm. with andromeda with rami yes with other ai but let's let's bring it back to biological things what is a sentient being is a salmon sentient mm, no is a dog no. Is a pig? No. It tastes good. What is what is sentience? Uh, anything that can reason about its environment around it, I guess. I don't know. You know, you're you're, you're throwing some serious stuff out there. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just saying. I mean, is is it a, a is a sentient being just anything that is can, aware uh, okay, of its let's, own? Let's, let's think about this. Let's let's take it down to the salmon. Okay. Is a salmon capable of responding to you like, say, a dolphin? Would, would would somebody looking at a dolphin, and a trained dolphin, and how it responds to you, would they say there's something there, a spark of, of intelligence? Yeah, there's no denying that, yeah, that there's, yeah, there's intelligence in a dolphin. How many salmon know how to balance a ball on the tip of its nose or click so many times for the amount of fish that it wants or something like that? I don't know. We'd have to Google it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, salmon know two things. Mm-hmm. They they know how to eat in the wild, and they know how to have sex at whatever spawning ground they're supposed to go to. Right. I don't think that's sentience. So I really can't. I mean, that's that's an, for me anyway. Okay. That's an easy line to draw. For Rev Bim, he's got to eat flesh. A salmon is not a sentient being. He can keep them. In a fish tank and and eat them as he needs to. That's to me. That's kind of an easy thing to do. Is a dolphin sentient? I well, I think the jury's still out on that. I've been watching uh, Sequest DSV, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I kind of think <laughs> in that portrayal. Yeah, they may be a little bit sentient. I'm willing to 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 think that yeah, they can they can reason on things. That's a, a sign of sentience, I think. Okay, but I mean. It, it, 
Okay. And is Am that, I by myself no, in saying that there's a line between salmon and dolphin? I'm I'm not I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just asking what is the distinction between what is something that Rev Bim can eat and what is something that he cannot. Does it have is that the line? Is it sentience? Well, I think you know we're talking about Rev Bim. He's not vegan. I mean, if you were going to say all life is sacred, then he would not eat any flesh whatsoever. Okay. Um, that's that's a very well. Then he would die. He would die. Mm-hmm. You're right. He can't do that. He can't do that. So yeah, there has to be a gray area in there in which he can say, well, um, okay, uh, uh, I can't eat a Castilian. Okay, all right. But a salmon is okay. Right. And, and to me, as a human being, who who happens to enjoy salmon, mm-hmm. I, I'm okay with that. Okay. I, I think that's an easy line to draw. Right. Well, but then again, the difference there is that salmon are fish. Castilians are humans, genetically modified to live underwater. Yeah, but they have a brain that's very similar to the human brain, or is a human brain. Okay. It's an easy line to draw. I'm just not sure it's that easy to May- draw it. Maybe, maybe the dolphin is the gray area. Okay. You know, it's a matter of conscience at that point. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's eat, it's up to each way per, Personally, I won't eat a dolphin, but I love tuna. Yeah, so well, maybe I, I have eaten dolphin. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't purposefully eat a dolphin. Right, right. But you know, there's a lot of animals I wouldn't purposefully eat. But you know, you travel around the world, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I've never traveled around the world. <laughs> By the way, listener, what's your favorite food to eat? <laughs> Do you enjoy pig or dolphin <laughs> or salmon? No. <laughs> All right, so something we learned about this universe, and I'm kind of going to, I'm kind of going to draw this more toward uh, the characters, because I think we learned a lot about the universe through the characters, and so that's going to be that that's going to be kind of what I'm coming from. Uh, first of all, Harper. Mm-hmm. Okay, <clears throat> as a character, I like Harper, and yet in this episode. I, I can only see him as being a self-centered so-and-so. And I want to use a stronger term than that, but this is a family-friendly podcast. Okay. Uh, one, he's simply wallowing in self-pity, which we have kind of seen him do before. Tyr has called him out on that in the previous episode. But uh, so, so we kind of understand that that's where he's coming from, and we get more of it in this episode. Two, he's a coward. He is a complete coward in this episode because he didn't have the guts to pull the trigger himself when he had the gun pointed to his stomach. Um, he lets Rami talk him out of it. He allows that to happen. And and then he entertains the idea of allowing the ship to blow up, taking Rami and Trance and him with it in order to solve his problem. He's willing to let that happen. And yet, you know, Rami talks him talks him out of it. And I don't know, he's, he's willing to let that happen. And then w- without any regard to trance or Rami, it seems. And then, you know, he, that's going to force the rest of the crew to operate, uh, trying to restore the Commonwealth and save the galaxies from the Magog invasion without the Andromeda. I mean, he's willing to make that sacrifice. And that to me just seems, it, it seems too selfish. And in the end, Rami talks him out of it, and yet 
he he kind of homes in on that Rami centric thing that she mentions about fixing each other, which I don't wonder if Harper thinks that that's some sort of strange innuendo. You know, oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> he probably yeah. did. Yeah. You know, is the way I'm thinking of it. But yeah, it still, even when he responds to Rami's prompting, it still somehow seems self serving. And I'm just thinking that. Right now, Harper is a character with this situation that he's facing. Yeah, it sucks, but I kind of don't like him right now. Mm-hmm. He's not dealing with it very well at all. Yeah, um, Harper was just not a good person in this episode. No. You're right. And and like you said, it's true. He is dealing with an awful lot right now. And you can you can see why... Maybe he would want to end it and just not go on anymore with the the prospect that he has. Yeah. Um, And it's like they try to tell him, you know, hey, you're taking this stuff and you're keeping them at bay right now. And but he's also remembering that it's not going to work. It's not going to last forever. It's not going to keep on working. And yes, there has never, ever been anything that anyone has ever done to fix this. So he, that's why he, you know, he, you can't fix me. No one can fix me. And it, it, his, his future definitely looks bleak. Yeah. Um, I personally would hate to think that that would be my attitude though. You know, you would, you would think that somebody faced with any sort of, of terrible uh, whether it be a disease or just any sort of problems they have that's life-threatening, you'd hope that they would just go out fighting. I I would hope yeah. I would. Yeah. I, I don't want to be like Harper was in this episode. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of my problem is yeah. because when it, what it comes down to is a sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. I've never witnessed or, or experienced with someone else. I've not faced the situ- situation that he has himself. Uh, I've not faced it myself. But I've never You've seen... never had magog larvae in your stomach? <laughs> I, I've never had that a... That kind of ter- surprises me. <laughs> I've never had a terminal condition. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. The, coming at it from that angle, from that perspective, I, I've never seen anyone facing a terminal illness that was as down as what Harper is portrayed to be in this episode. They They always seem to have some sort of positive to cling to, and you have to have that. In order to pull through. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously Harper doesn't. I, I, I'm i saying this as if I don't like it. And it's true. I don't like it. But I guess there are people out there that face terminal illnesses exactly the way Harper does. Yeah, They don't see any way out. And so they fall into that abyss mm-hmm. of despair. Right. And, and wow, I, I can't imagine facing a situation like that. Well, and there – well, like you said it, there are – two ways to look at any sort of uh, terminal situation, whether it be an illness or, or anything. And, you know, many people do um, come at it swinging and fighting yeah. and looking for anything good that, they can, that can come out of it. Sometimes people beat it. Yeah. Um, and then there are other people who they just, they can't handle it. And they just let themselves go or, or yeah, very s- sadly they end it. Yeah. You know, like Harper was, he was, he was definitely, I would say more than just flirting with that idea. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that's terrible to see. 
Uh, yeah, it, you're right, and that, and that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of what I'm seeing in Harper. Is it, it was tough to watch that mm-hmm. because I can't fathom it myself. Mm-hmm. But you're right; there are people that that do face that, probably that uh, are out there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, talking a little bit more about our characters, uh, I'd like to go back to Rev Bim for okay. just a, just a minute. Let's do um, it. You know, well, not necessarily Rev Bim, actually. All of the other characters around Rev Bim is really what I want to talk about. Okay. Um, because you have Tyr, who once he finds out this problem that there's a hungry Magog on the ship and they're the only things to eat, <laughs> um, Tyr's ready to get rid of him. Yes. Becca is no, absolutely. I trust Rev. We've been through so much. And Dylan's just kind of like, we'll find a way out. I trust Becca. Yeah, you know, if yeah. Beck, if Becca says it's okay, then we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Anyway, it's just kind of interesting, just that 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 dynamic between um, Becca and Rev, and they have a scene later on where um, they they get very close. Yeah. Uh, and Becca actually touches him, and I think that means a lot to him. Mm-hmm. Um, most anybody should just be scared out of their gourd right now. Yeah. Like like Tear, well he, he handled himself well, but he's he's scared. <laughs> he's he is scared. He refers to the Bagog that he saw in the world ship as feral animals, and right. it seems like how he's viewing Rev now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, he is scared, even though he may not admit it himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of it kind of reminded me a little bit of there are certain breeds of dogs. And there are certain um, biases, certain stereotypes that come along with these certain breed of dogs. And these these certain breed of dogs are kind of just, um, they're labeled or classified as being vicious um, by the media and by just the general public. Are you referencing pit bulls? Um, that, that might be one of them. Okay. Okay. But anyway, just Tears' attitude, it just kind of seems like he's talking about a pit bull. Yeah. The way a lot of people talk about a pit bull. Yeah. Just, just basically, you cannot trust them. They eventually will turn on you. <laughs> and they're just, they're terrible, terrible, feral animals yeah. is all that they are. You, you cannot train them to be loyal or loving or anything. And the, the Magog, you can't. You can't trust them. They yeah. will. They'll eventually eat you. Uh, then you have Becca, who is like uh, the majority of pit bull owners. <laughs> you know, it says no, 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 no. You don't understand. Um, I have been with Rev for a very, very long time. I completely trust him. No, no, you don't understand. I've raised this dog from a puppy. I know this dog's temperament has been around. Wait, nothing. wait, 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 no. She's yeah. only just been around him for seven years. She didn't raise him from a puppy. No. <laughs> I, I think you're projecting a little bit, actually. Well, I'm making an analogy. <laughs> it seems like this strikes a little close to home, Well, there's perhaps. a comparison that's involved. Yeah, well, so yeah, I am actually a pit bull owner. But that's, that's kind of what I, I saw, is because this is the conversation that I have to have with people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I hate having this conversation, because I know how people feel. And I know how I feel. I don't go out trying to change people's minds. Yeah. But when people come at me and say, you have a pit bull and you have two beautiful little girls, that dog is eventually going to rip their faces off. <laughs> Which is not true. I would, I would trust a, 
a a I would trust your dog uh, more so than a chihuahua or something around you, yeah. your little girls. Right, absolutely. And I know that there's people listening right now that are on both sides of this that are saying, no, 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 you got to get rid of that dog. You're stupid. And there are people who are saying, yeah, man, yeah, pit bulls are awesome. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm not trying to use this as a as a soapbox to try to prove a point. But I'm just saying, I kind of. Understand. You identified with it. I, yeah. yeah. I saw this and I'm like, I kind of understand this conversation because yeah. I've had this conversation. <laughs> I did not I did not used to like pit bulls. I was like everybody else. I hated them. My wife's dad raises them and gave us a puppy as a wedding gift. We've had that dog now for going on 11 years. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> For being able to keep a dog that long? Yeah, in this day and age, that's a tough thing to do is keep yeah. a dog that long. I know it. But, you know, but so it's kind of like I, I, I kind of kind of feel what, what Becca is saying. I've I've been around Rev Bem for seven years. I know what he's like. I know what makes him tick. I can trust him. Yeah, yeah. So you may not get it, Tyr, but believe me. This Magog is not going to hurt anyone. And yet she still has to have that conversation with Rev Bim just to it seemed <laughs> like she was going for reassurance. And she kinda gets it, I think. But did it did it yeah. I don't know. I mean Yeah. I'm not sure that I got that from that. I thought it was more she wanted to go talk to him and make sure that he was okay. Not necessarily to make sure that they were going to be okay. I, I don't know. The way I took I, – I kind of came away from that with she's going to him. She connects with him. She's appealing to his humanity, mm-hmm. it, you know, for lack of a better term. It, just as a – we don't want to get eaten. Uh-huh. <laughs> don't give in. Okay. And, and Rev Bim's response was, well, I pray that I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I yeah. guess that's as much as you can hope for. All right, all right. Well, yeah. So then, I guess really, what happens then is you're saying. I mean, what Becca? Becca tells. <laughs> imagine you go to your pit bull, uh-huh. your dog, and say, "Jersey, don't bite me." And she's like, "I hope I won't." Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, it's kind of what I was hearing. Okay. You know? All right. Okay. And I loved how Dylan was just like, "I'm out. <laughs> I'll go find a settlement." <laughs> Tear. Protect Becca. Mm-hmm. I'll be back when I get back. <laughs> he totally bailed, didn't he? He totally bailed. All right. Yes, he did. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I, I didn't want to have to call him on it, okay. but yeah, I'm calling him on it. All right. He bailed. I'm hungry Magog here. You guys stay here. I'm going to go freeze outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about Tear for a second. Uh, what's one thing that I love in, in any of our sci-fi? We've talked about it before. It, time travel? No, not oh, time travel. Oh. Continuity. Oh, 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 yeah. Continuity. We Sorry. love continuity. We just see so little of it, I forget. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tyr gives us some backstory into what exactly happened during his time away from the Andromeda when he had the Maru in Music of a Distant Drum. So they remembered that episode. They did. Okay. That was awesome. That was like a whole season ago. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so he was actually involved with this team of the, uh, what was it, Mandal Pride? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to to retrieve uh, Drago Masevni's remains, mm-hmm. and yet you know the Drago Castle attacked and uh, things went south. But uh, I, I thought it was great that we had this story 
set up by a previous story in the mm-hmm. first season. I, I just I just had to point out that we learned a lot about this universe. It, things carry forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was great. Right. Just just seeing that happen and learning a little bit about what happened, why Tyr was in the position he was at in Music of a Distant Drum. Right. It's interesting to find out that he was not completely acting alone. Yeah. Um, he was definitely acting for his own self-interest. But in Music of a Distant Drum, I we really get the impression that he's completely acting alone. Somehow... Tyr Anasazi goes into the, the Drago Cats off world or drift or wherever they are that they have these remains and he single handedly steals the remains of Drago Musevni. Yeah. And you know, that's gotta be tough. Yeah. He figured I think if we go back and listen to that discussion of that show, I think we probably made some comments about how um, it must not have been very well guarded or something right? for him to just walk in there and grab it and take it out. But that's not entirely the case. Yeah. As we weren't. Right. So yeah. there was, there was, there was more to it than that. Yeah. And, and I think something more that we learn, uh, you were talking about, uh, we learned a little bit about Rev Ben, but we learned about the Bagog in the digestive system. Mm-hmm. I think we learned a lot about the Nietzschean people here too. Mm-hmm. And the state of decay that exists among the Nietzscheans as a race. Uh, this is th- these individuals, Kiyama and his team. They're from Mandel Pride, and they could care less about the greater good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just want money. Mm-hmm. They want to turn Tyr in for the ten million Drago Eagles or whatever it is that they're offering. How does an eagle translate in the money exchange? Um, by the way, I think it's it's worth less than a Quatlu, <laughs> but more than a Gilder. More than a Gilder. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's interesting. Uh, this is a despotic people. I mean, it, it seems like more and more, as we see more and more prides interacting with one another, they could care less about galactic domination and more about just what they can get. And Which, okay, okay, yeah, that centers around the Nietzschean philosophy. Mm-hmm. But it's usually a bigger picture. You would think that somebody would have the foresight to think on the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kiyami had the perfect opportunity, or Kiyama. Kiyama has the opportunity. That's his sister. Okay. <laughs> Kiyami? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That was the, the female. Yeah, the female term. Um, Kiyama has the opportunity to link up with Tyr, who, with the remains of Drago Masebni, could control the fate of the Nietzschean people. Mm-hmm. He's totally willing to just throw that out the window for 10 million Drago eagles. Mm-hmm. And that just seems like, you know, what is it? Cutting your nose to spite, spite your, your face. face. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very short-sighted of him. And, and yet more and more as we see interactions with, with the Nietzschean people, that's kind of what they boil down to. I, 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 maybe yeah. it's not so much something we learn about the Nietzscheans, but it's reinforcement yeah. about the Nietzschean race. Yes and no. I mean, it seems to be this group of Nietzscheans. I don't know if it's the whole pride or just this particular group. Um because it seems like the other prides, they have an incredible amount of respect and reverence for Drago Musevni. Yes. Um, otherwise, there wouldn't be this whole struggle for for the remains. So why? Okay. Okay. So the question I have is: is why isn't 
Why isn't Tyr approaching one of these prides or several of these prides and saying, I have the remains. Uh-huh. Listen to me. Let us establish a, a, a standard here. Uh-huh. Why aren't they – why isn't he giving them the opportunity to link up with him? Well, because he's just one person. Yeah. I mean, he says, hey, I have the remains. They're like, mm, not anymore. <laughs> okay. But Tyr seems and, like a resourceful enough and guy. Don't, and don't the dragons know that he has the remains? Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, I guess going a little further with Tyr, um, what is it you've, – you've mentioned a few times. What is the question that your wife always asks when she watches Andromeda? Mm, yes. Uh, why is Tyr on the ship? Huh. Seems like, poignant. Yeah. We uh, – that, that kind of stuck out to me this week because um, – that question is pretty much just flat out asked. Yes, it is. Why are you here, Tyr? <laughs> it, it was almost as if Dylan said – it was that situation where your boss invites you into the office mm-hmm. and asks, where do you see yourself in five years? Because <laughs> it may not be with this company. Uh-huh. <laughs> Explain yourself. I don't know if you, you've not had that experience. No, I've never you, had a real right. job. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for me, that was very mm-hmm. telling. It, it was very much that situation it, it, from my perspective. So so then why is Tyr on the ship then? What what can we say from this? I love his explanation or his, his answer mm-hmm. to Dylan in that situation. He's very honest. I mean, because you could tell in every episode that you saw him in early on in the first season, he he had the ego. Uh, he, he, he thought he could do it himself and, and challenged constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a very honest answer that he gave. He thought he could do it himself. And then it became com- comfortable for him to operate from the Andromeda. But yeah, now it's this whole Magog world ship is a game changer for him. Mm-hmm. I think he's very honest in that answer. And it made sense to me in mm-hmm. him in his explanation. And there were moments as Keith Hamilton Cobb was acting that at, out that were – he had some expressions on his face that were borderline maniacal. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, there is ego with mm-hmm. that character, with Tyr. And yet he recognizes that he has to keep that in check because this situation that he has right now in front of him is his best option. Mm-hmm. And yet it doesn't take the tension away at all. Yeah. It is easy to believe what he's saying uh, because he does come right out and say, my plan was to take the ship from you and then go serve my own interests. Um but then with what happened it's changed his mind yeah and but you got to you also got to wonder really what is his loyalty is his loyalty still uh is is his loyalty now to Dylan and Dylan's cause or is it only to Dylan for as long as it still benefits him and and that is why Dylan has that opening line when they start their game of go. Mm-hmm. It, he makes he sets his chip on the board, and then he looks at Tyr and says, "It's your move." Mm-hmm. It, Dylan understands Tyr's uh, loyalty. It's not with Dylan. Mm-hmm. It's not with the reestablished Commonwealth. It's not even with Andromeda and its crew. Tyr is there because it benefits Tyr, mm-hmm. and and Dylan understands that. He has said that in the first season. He understands now that still hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. 
So Tier is going to have to make his move. Dylan is going to watch for it. It, it. That's kind of what I took away from mm-hmm. this. And, and, and I love the fact that there's that menacing undertone to Tier's continued presence mm-hmm. on the Andromeda. I liked it. Okay, Ethan, let's go ahead and move on to our quote for the week. The opening quote of this show, The soul is larger than the sky, deeper than the ocean, or the abysmal dark of the unfathomed center. Who is that by? Enoch Verdever. That is the uh, Lamentations uh, Sous Terre. Okay. Kind of sounds French. Kind of sounds French. Mm -hmm. I actually looked it up. You have some information on that, don't you? I kind of do, mm-hmm. because that, that soutère was a, an inter- interesting word for me. And as I looked it up, it looks like it's more of a uh, a, a play on a French word. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French word being souterrain, which is the French word meaning underground. Wow. Yeah. So I thought that, that was kind of cool, because the majority of this episode takes place underground. Mm-hmm. In fact, of... Of all of this saying and the, the, the byline of who it's from, I, I actually totally glossed over the, the quote itself. <laughs> it, that essentially means nothing to me. Uh-huh. It's that souter that I kind of honed in on. And then when I learned that it, you know, it's a derivative of that French word of underground, I'm like, well, that makes, that's awesome. I loved it because this was an underground episode. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about Rev Bim. With okay. this, with this, and because with him being such a uh, spiritual person, um, there's a lot of expressions, you know, mind over matter, or or things like that, to, for some sort of divine um, spirit to help you through th- something that's bigger than what you could get through on your own, and we see a lot of that with with Rev Bim, especially in this episode. Um, he's he's constantly got to be uh drawing on that the the divine to give him the power to be able to get through whatever he is getting through oh, all right well well can i kind of stop you on that for okay. just a second uh, you talk about rev relying on the divine mm-hmm. in order to get him th- am i hearing you right in getting him through this situation yeah okay yeah. he admits in that conversation with becca that he is not of the divine okay yeah and Becca kind of has to talk him back around to it, and mm-hmm. I don't think she's entirely successful in that because she herself doesn't seem like she believes in the divine. So how do you reconcile right. that? Where Where is Rev Bim at? You hate to say that he's at a crossroads because you think that he's he's seen the other side. He put the medallion back on, and he's relying on the divine again. Yeah. Even though he says he's not of the divine – but he still keeps praying. Well, then to whom is he praying? Is, is, he, is he just deciding that the divine is better than his creator? Well, I mean, he decided that a long time ago when he turned true. to Wayism. It Now, granted, he didn't know anything about the Magog origins. He didn't know anything about the spirit of the abyss. But I think he figured that the divine was better than anything else that could possibly be out there. Okay. And I, I guess I guess what I what I get from this is that first line: the soul is larger than the sky, and any of these other things that it goes on to. Um, you know, the soul of Rev Bim, um, with the help of the divine or the abyss, um, is able to to do things beyond what he can do on his own. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. 
I don't know. Or maybe maybe we're just trying to make sense of a, a fortune cookie. I, there you go. Okay. I, I like that because I, I think that's the crux of it. Okay. We're trying to make sense of a fortune cookie in the quote. Mm-hmm. But what I really feel like has an impact with the episode is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. This made up Enoch Vertever, Lamentations Soter. Okay. Uh, underground. I think this is a saying that really ultimately is just saying this show's going to be underground. <laughs> <laughs> and and whatever else you take okay. from it, okay, yeah. you know, good on you. Okay. Well, if that's what really what they're saying is that there's going to be a lot of underground in this show, then I think they did a really good job of carrying that out throughout the show. I think they did too. Yeah. I think they did too. All right, so final reflections. Um, here we have it, exit strategies. Ethan, what are your thoughts coming away well, from this? Well, it had nothing to do with militarism, did it? Mm, not really. No. <laughs> I mean, I guess... Okay, so let's just bypass that whole discussion <laughs> that I thought we were going to have based on last week, just exit strategy. No. Uh, exit strategies, I thought was a really great episode. I, I, I'll just come out front and say it. I enjoyed watching this episode. As I was watching it the second and the third time through, I was finding more things to, t- to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you have to do that with this show. If you're going through Andromeda first watch, this is one of those that you can ju- you'll just you'll see it and you won't think about it and you'll just move on. But when you really take the time to think about it, there's a lot in this episode. Mm-hmm. I don't like what they did with Harper. I really have a problem with what they did with his character in this episode. And yet, you kind of have to see it. You have to admit that, that Harper is a self-centered person. And you may want to think of him as making the right decisions, making the more positive decisions in facing the situation that he's up against. But that's not who he is. And, and, And... I think that was one of the things I enjoyed was facing that within myself is realizing I don't like it, but there are people that are out there like that. Mm. And then Rev Bim, obviously with his situation, uh, it was difficult to watch and a bit of uncertainty. Tear, the same thing. He's going to act. Tear is tear. He's going to act how he's going to act. And there's that element of uncertainty. This is a really good episode for setting up the second season, showing you that we have various characters, they have their flaws, and they're going to act, one, on in their best interests, but there's enough there to allow you to hope that they're going to act for the benefit of others, too. And I think when you look at it from that broad perspective, this is a really good episode that tells you a lot about three of the core characters of the story arc, uh, of the story, the series that we're watching. And for that reason... Uh, this is kind of a diamond in, in the rough episode. Uh, on the surface, it may not seem like all that much, but when you really think about it in the context of what you're seeing in the series, this is, to me, it feels like kind of an important episode to see. Yeah, I, I think I agree with um, most everything that you just said. And, you know, I guess, okay, we'll start with Harper. Um I agree that that was terrible to to watch him go through. It was terrible that Harper acted the way that he did, but it's also it it's kind of Harper. 
Um, we've seen him act very rashly before, and we've seen him um, act in a very cowardly way before. The difference was he had someone like Tyr right next to him to kick his butt and get him in shape. You're right. This time he didn't have that. You're right. And I guess I guess Harper needs someone like that. Rami eventually came around to to getting him to 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 act right, sort of in a way. But I don't know, maybe maybe sometime next week or in between now and the next episode when Tyr comes back on the ship, you know he'll whip him into Have shape. Have a heart to heart with him. Yeah, because <laughs> it kind of seems to be Harper needs tough love. Yeah, and I don't think no, Rami right. Rami was not tough enough with him. Yeah, she was trying to appeal more to his emotions and you know, oh, we need you. Whereas Tyr is more. Get it together, boy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, you're and, absolutely And right. it worked. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, there's also, as far as the whole crew, you mentioned that it, at the end of the last episode, The Widening Gyre, it seemed like the whole crew had come together because of this terrible ordeal that they had just survived on the Magog world ship. Everything is going to be bunnies and roses from here on out. <laughs> Well, now we have exit strategies, and and things are just not quite as cohesive as they seemed to be at yeah. the end of the last episode. It's like a real family. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, you go through something rough, everyone comes together, and then as soon as that's over, you know, then people start... People are people. They're, they start <laughs> acting like themselves again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, Harper's an emotional basket case coward. Um, Tyr is completely egocentric and then, and Dylan still is just trying to keep it all together. <laughs> yeah. He's the, he's the dad. Mm-hmm. He's the husband just trying to hold the family together. Yeah. You're right. absolutely right. No, that's, that's a great, that's a great analogy. I like that. Um, as far as an episode, you know, I guess I think one of the things that has got to stand out to me anyway, is just the whole deal with Rev Bim and, him fighting this with this struggle uh, to not eat his friends, you know, and he's mentioned this before. This is a daily struggle for him. Yeah. Every day in previous episodes, he's mentioned that. Uh, now we see it. This is a very real threat now. And so I think that's that in itself is memorable. Yeah. And, you know, just along with all of the ties back to music of the of a distant drum and it just kind of it, – it really is one of those episodes that makes sense in the overall story. And I love it when stories do that. Yes. when I love it when episodes do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'd have to say this was an episode I enjoyed watching. Um, I enjoyed talking about it. So there's really nothing that I didn't like about this episode except for Harper's behavior. <laughs> but what are you going to do? That's just Harper. Yeah. So that's it. Exit strategies. Yep. And uh, before we go, Ethan, we actually, in between our release of the last episode and recording tonight, um, we got some really good listener feedback. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And and we wanted to give a shout out to Ray, mm-hmm. who uh, emailed us in at the uh, drivebackthenight at gmail.com. He got the email address right mm-hmm. and got his email to us. And uh, he spoke very highly uh, of the show. Uh, he... he as I remember, well, I've got it right here. Uh, he said, that, thanks for breathing some new life back into one of my favorite TV shows. It's been a lot of fun seeing the show again through the lens of another's eye. 
I've learned a lot about the show. Enjoy your humor. You got a great on air chemistry. Uh, thanks, Ray. We really appreciate that. Uh, that's one of the things that we love about doing the show is hearing from you, the listeners, mm -hmm. uh, getting your thoughts on it. And, you know, he is short and sweet and uh, very positive, and we certainly appreciate that. We work very hard to, to bring the show to you week after week, and uh, and thanks for, for giving uh, giving us that little bit of feedback. Right, right. and that really did it made us feel really good, just made our day. Considering, mm -hmm. considering the last week that we've had, yeah, this was a really great email yeah. to have gotten at that time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know what? I mean, we, we're not... We're not only accepting positive emails. Um, if you have something uh, negative that you want to say, or if you want to say something about the uh, an upcoming episode of Andromeda, or maybe one that we've already covered, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Anything that you'd have to say about our show or about Andromeda, and uh, anything we may be able to uh, to use on the show, uh, we'd certainly love to do that. And again, that was Drive Back the Night podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We're using the handle at AndromedaPod on both of those services. We are on Podbean at www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. And you can find us on iTunes. If you listen to the podcast through iTunes, be sure and drop us a line uh, by giving us a review or giving us some stars. We would certainly appreciate that. And special thanks to special guest voice. Yeah, this is the, we had this episode. Yeah, we have uh, for our opening quote, Doug Anderson, good friend of ours, who uh, helped us out with the opening quote for this episode. And uh, we are an Age of Geek production. www.ageofgeek.com. Go check them out. They have a lot of good shows. We've uh, we've kind of been taking a break during the summer months a little bit, but we've got a couple of shows coming up with some special guests that we're really looking forward to bringing. Yeah, a little cross promotion. Now you may be able to tell Ethan's the one that really heads up the Age of Geek. Hi there. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Give us a listen. Until then, we uh, thank you for joining us for this episode, and we hope that you will join us back here again next time as we consider a heart for falsehood framed. <laughs> <laughs>